Hey, we finally come to the final part of our series called The Art of Being Unordinary. We've been looking through Luke chapter 17 and 18, and today we're finishing off chapter 18. And I want to start off by asking this question. What are some descriptors that come to mind when I use the word God? Now, some of you think, oh, God is good. God is just. God is holy. God is mighty. And these are great answers. But if you were to share these answers with some of your friends that don't know God as much as you do, they might inevitably come up with counterpoints to your point, such as, if God is so good, why did God release the, the angels of death in the book of Exodus? I mean, that doesn't sound like a good God to me. Or, if God is so just, why would he allow so much injustice to happen in the world around us? Now, there's a ton that's written about these topics, and it would take us forever to go over each one of them. So today, I just want to focus on two of those descriptors, which is that God is king and God is victorious. So let's start with the God is victorious part. We're going to start from Luke chapter 18, verse 31. Jesus took the 12, that's the 12 disciples, aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. To which you're thinking, what was written about the Son of Man? So here's some information that's going to help you get caught up with what the disciples thought about the Son of Man. The Son of Man is the prophesied one. Back in the book of Daniel, there was all these prophecies about how one day all the wrong things in the world are going to be turned to right once this quote-unquote Son of Man shows up. And so there were a lot of prophecies about who this Son of Man was going to be. And one of them was that he's going to be a victorious king. They believe that the Son of Man is going to enter into Jerusalem and that he's going to take over the whole religious system and set everything right. Now, some of these disciples believe that the Son of Man was going to be a military leader and that his disciples are going to be the, com the commanders of that army. That they're going to go in there and they're going to slice down and punch the bad guys in the face and that they're going to make everything right. So is that what Jesus is alluding to when he says that everything that's written about the Son of Man is about to be fulfilled? Well, let's read on and find out what he says. He, that's the Son of Man, will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him, and they will flog him and kill him. But wait a minute, Jesus, I thought the Son of Man was supposed to have victory. Why are you telling us that he's going to go through so much suffering? To which Jesus would say, yes, you read through the Bible, you read about all the prophecies about the Son of Man, but you seem to have ignored the part about the suffering. See, to his disciples, they couldn't associate the word victory with words like the Son of Man's going to be handed over to the Gentiles or that they're going to, he's going to be spat on or he's going to be insulted or eventually he's going to be killed. So Jesus ends that paragraph by saying this, On the third day, he will rise again. So you have to imagine this scene. Jesus is reminding them, Hey guys, we've had a lot of detours, but we're on our way to Jerusalem. We're about a day and a half away from there. So let's get going. I'm going to be captured, I'm going to be interrogated, they're going to whip me, and they're going to put me on the cross, and they're going to kill me, and God's going to bring me back to life in three days, all right? So salvation on three. One, two, three! And everybody's like, what are you talking about, Jesus? I thought this is a victory march. See, you and I, being on the other side of history, we know that Jesus brings victory into our world through his suffering and his death and his resurrection. But they couldn't understand that. So their natural response is recorded for us in the next line. It says this, The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. See, Jesus is teaching us something that's fundamentally true about victories, is that a lot of times the greatest joys in life lie on the other side of suffering. You see, later in history that's recorded for us in the Bible, in the book of Hebrews, it says that 
that going to the cross for Jesus was motivated by the joy that was set before him. He knew that he had to go through his suffering in order to bring some of the greatest things into this world. You see, I believe that today, when you and I experience pain, we think that the only reason pain exists is so that we could cast it away. But to Jesus, pain was a path that we all had to go through in order to get to the other side, which is the greatest joy that we could ever experience. You see, most results that are truly joyful require an investment from our part of time, energy, and sometimes pain. For example, the death of Jesus begat heaven on earth. And for us, death to old habits begets new, healthier habits. And death to self begets transformation. And the disciples, they completely missed those lessons. They were praying for victory without the suffering. But that's not the only thing they didn't get. Let's go to the next part. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. So this blind guy in Jericho is like, what's, what's all the commotion? And somebody says, Jesus is coming town. And so the guy's like, I've heard stories about this guy. I need to get his attention. Then he called out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, when he uses the phrase, Jesus, son of David, that means he knows exactly who he is. You are the prophesied one. You are the one that we've been waiting for. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, this is a big twist in the story. The very people who represents Jesus, the people who are standing around Jesus, who travel with Jesus, is basically putting their hand out saying, you can't come here because you're blind. But the blind man persisted even harder. And the reason why he did is because in the back of his mind, he knew exactly who Jesus was, that he was a son of man. He was the one that was prophesied. Then Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. He says, the reason why you're so persistent and finally caught my attention is because you knew exactly who I was. Because of that faith, you are now better because you caught my attention. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Okay, so for the remainder of the time, I want to talk about the obstacle that this blind man had to face. Why were the disciples telling the blind man to get lost? A few minutes ago, these disciples are basically saying that we could, God could bring victory without any suffering. And now they're saying, let's make it as hard as possible for these people who need Jesus to come see Jesus. Now, are we to assume that these disciples were just so ignorant that they missed the main point? Or is there something else at play here? You see, by now the disciples, they've been traveling with Jesus for about three years. And in three years, they started to come to these conclusions about who Jesus was. I mean, Jesus, he's been dropping hints here and there. And they eventually realized that Jesus, he's not just an ordinary carpenter that came out of Nazareth, that he's actually the king of kings. And they got that part right. But the way they defined king was a little off. See, back in those days, and maybe even today, important people like kings have an entourage. They have bodyguards. They have a posse of people traveling with them. And they also know that kings should also have their priorities set on people who are of importance. And so people who are blind are not on that list. And so they would do everything they can to push those people away. And that was their way of saying to Jesus, we believe you're that important. You see, kings don't have time for beggars. They don't have time for babies. 
they have time only for important men. And so what they did was they took the definition of a king in their current era, and then they put Jesus, who is king, into that box, and anything that's outside the box, they basically scraped away. By putting God in a box, they were actually doing the exact opposite of what God wanted them to do. So this reminds me of a story. In the past 20 years that I've been preaching, I've been invited to speak at several retreats and also some churches. And one time I was preaching at this one church where uh, the room was separate, like there's an aisle in the middle and there's seats to the left and the right. And as I was preaching, I noticed a few familiar faces. These are my friends who came to support me at this church. Now on the other side of the room, there was this elderly man who to me looked like he was falling asleep. And if he wasn't falling asleep, he was actually asleep. But in, occasionally, he'll be awake, and when he was awake, he would make these weird sounds like, Arr, Arr, like he was angry with me or something. Now, at first I thought, you know, I could just ignore that. It's, you know, I'll just endure it for a few seconds and get, get on with my sermon. But over time, it got so annoying that I could barely focus on my notes. So I recall looking around the room for ushers to see if any of them were walking towards the man to tell him to be quiet. And when I noticed that none of them were doing that, I looked at the pastor of that church who was sitting in the front row, and I was giving eye signals to him to let him know that I was uncomfortable. And he, I think he caught the clue because he was looking around to see what he should do. But over time, I noticed that he decided that he's just gonna let him stay. So gradually, I started focusing on one side of the room and try to mentally block the other side of the room because that was the only way I could get through the sermon. Now, typically, after the service is over, the people of the church line up around me to just say thank you, thanks for coming to our church and sharing God's word. And in there were my friends. Now, lo and behold, I noticed that the elderly man was also in line. And as he came up to me with a deep voice with tears in his eyes, said, Pastor, thank you so much for giving me that message. That message was for me. He gave me a big hug and then he walked away. Now, after the crowd cleared, the pastor came up to me and said, Hey, Kotz, I'm so sorry about that man who was distracting you during service. But you have to understand that recently he came to this revelation that God has forgiven him. For most of his life, he's carried this weight of all the mistakes he's made, and he thought that nobody in this world would ever love him again. But just a few weeks ago, he started coming to church again because he realized that God loves him. Now, because of his health conditions, every once in a while he has to clear his throat. Every once in a while he'll doze off and fall asleep. But he loves being here, and I know that your message really penetrated his heart today. That's when I realized that I put God in a box. You see, I believe that God is a God of order. And for that reason, I put him in a box of order, only to find out that God doesn't always operate within that box. And that's when I felt God speaking to me. Kotz. You couldn't embrace the messiness of ministry so much that you almost pushed him away. You almost pushed him away from me. You see, ever since then, I've learned several new things about God. That heaven on earth often happens where there's messiness. That sometimes we diminish the beauty of God by putting him into our ugly boxes. Looking back 20 years, I've discovered that some of the best ministry moments in my life, in my career, has been when people unexpectedly started dancing or when somebody just stood up in the middle of service and said, Pastor, I want to get baptized right now. I remember speaking at InterVarsity at UCLA. In the middle of my sermon, some of the students started shouting, Amen, or you preach it. And I realized, I'm not used to this, but I love it. By the way, when people do that, it takes my 25-minute sermon and becomes 45 minutes, so be careful. 
The point is, when we confine God to our own imaginations, then we are restricting the beauty of God. So if there's something that happens outside of that box, we all have to learn to adjust. Yes, Jesus is a king. The, the disciples got that right. But this king does not need gatekeepers. Why is that? Because Jesus accepts every single person that comes to him. And in this specific story, Jesus actually oversteps those gatekeepers to reach out to the people who really need to meet him. I believe what Jesus is teaching us today is we need to let Jesus out of our boxes. I mean, in the passage that we read today, we could see that Jesus is trying to break free from some of the boxes that the disciples put him in, such as, yes, I'm a victorious king, but we're not going to reach victory by shaming other people, by slicing other people, by stabbing these people, or even inflicting wounds on other people. We're going to have victory by loving people, forgiving people, and letting people hit us on one cheek and we'll still turn the other one to them. Yes, Jesus is a king, but this king is a servant. And if that last sentence didn't make sense to you, that's the exact point of this message. You can't put God in a box. So brothers and sisters, may God continue to mess with our labels and, and titles and our boxes that we put him in. May we all experience the beauty of God and the messiness that he creates around us. And may we all experience heaven together. God bless.